you have to be so careful if you're going to write a story about a group of international terrorists attacking America. Yeah. Because when you're designing these characters and you're designing their ideology and what they're doing, it's so fraught. You're dealing with some very real world, heavy political things. And every time you design a character who hates a particular thing about America, if that character you've designed is an out and out villain that the entire book you're going to be rooting against, you have positioned the plot in such a way and yourself in such a way that you are defending the thing that that character doesn't like about America. And he had a bunch of different characters dislike different things about America. And it started to feel like everything they disliked was something that the author was saying is good, right? It's like, uh, shouldn't be a problem. And like for people to hold it against America is wrong. Friends, to episode 252 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Walter Wager's 1987 novel, 58 Minutes, which would be the basis for Die Hard 2, in case you don't know. I feel like it's good to get that out there because people see 58 minutes like what the fuck is that <laughs> yeah i mean on on audible they have it listed now it's on the cover <laughs> yeah very apparent that that's the case i'm surprised that roderick thorpe didn't get this treatment a little more right like uh for whatever reason this book is get it seems like it got a little more of a push in marketing and connecting it to the franchise than nothing lasts forever which seems to be largely forgotten was very hard to find it's like semi out of print yeah, I don't know. I don't know why these decisions get made. Maybe it's like the teams on behalf of each author and how much they're pushing for it and what they can get. That, that's probably what it comes down to. Probably, maybe yeah. Maybe Wager's got a better agent or a more active agent. Or, or I don't know, maybe the artist wants to be wants it to stand alone as its own thing. And I think Thorpe and Wager are both, are both deceased now, so whatever's left is now just like legacy stuff, maybe. Could be, could be um, estate, maybe. You know, their relatives overseeing some of this stuff. Um, I don't, yeah, 58 minutes. I mean, it made a sale. I bought it, I bought it on Audible. So they're still make somebody should still be making money off of it. Maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's the children. Um, anyway, Die Hard 2. Uh, we decided to go back to the world of John McClane and Die Hard. Uh, we started off our, our entire show. Our very first Christmas project was Die Hard. And, uh, that's, that's a, a perennial classic to me. Um, my relationship with it has, has definitely like shifted over time, but I still enjoy that movie. It still feels like Christmas to me when it's on. Um, we talked about how to both of us, we feel it is a Christmas movie. Um, but I, I mean, at this point, the debate over it is kind of silly and it's gotten overdone to death. Yeah. Um, so we I think in 2017, it, it was already kind of a topic that had been well-tread and now it's been, you know, like five years. Or yeah. Right. They keep trotting it out every year. So we're like, why not look at Die Hard 2 also set around Christmas and ask the question, is this a Christmas movie? 
And also, is it a decent movie? Is the adaptation any good? How do this? How does the two compare? So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to get into here. But yeah, uh, happy holidays, man. Happy holidays to you and and our listeners. Yeah, and to the listeners, uh, you know, it, it, we celebrate Christmas. I celebrate it in a way that is basically a religious, almost more like a Yuletide, you know. (laughs) Very pagan. I'm very pagan. I haven't gone through the process of like stripping all of my Christmas decorations from their, you know, Christ (laughs) connected imagery. I'm too lazy to do that. So it looks pretty similar. I don't have a lot of crosses or anything like that. So that's like my one way of doing it kind of pagan. But maybe I should get more into the like the pagan version of it, right? Very green night. Like that could be cool. Maybe one of these days, maybe I'll start transitioning to that. Um, but regardless, it's a t- it's a holiday I like. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the sort of like cozy, you know, twinkling lights this time of year when it's cold out, and getting together with family. Usually, although this year I can't go to Florida, unfortunately, I am not able to take to the skies like the people in this novel. Um, so it's nice to be able to revisit a franchise that I have a lot of fondness for. Have you? Seen Die Hard 2, James. Yeah, but completely erased from my memory. So, <laughs> okay. You know, if, it's, if it's even similar to this book, I don't remember. Okay. I have seen it a few times, but the most recent time has probably, it's probably 15 plus years ago. So I have some vague memories of it, but um, yeah, honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you a lot about it. I, some of it came back reading this book because there is some similarities. Um, and this is a, this is kind of an interesting adaptation and I guess we'll, we'll probably get more into the actual adaptation choices that were made, um, when, once we've seen the movie and can talk about it more. But one of the things that, that is interesting to me just out of the gates is they decided to adapt Die Hard 2 from this book, but they're basically just lifting the plot and very like I mean they some of the characters are similar but like the main character is is John McClane now right and, and much like the first Nothing Lasts Forever book they've taken an original character and put it in the protagonist position of a thriller novel that they are ostensibly adapting I haven't seen this a ton in the other pro- other projects we've covered right where it's like kind of an adaptation but it's also just like we're gonna use the plot from this thing in some characters and then otherwise make it our own thing yeah it is strange because to connect it to a franchise that was already going from a book that has nothing to do with it right really the only thing it has going for it is that it somewhat fits in that thriller genre with a lot of the same tropes that you that you're expecting to see in a in a die hard film so interestingly this book came out in 87 die hard one comes out in 88 so this book was actually released and published before the original Die Hard came out. Yeah. I, let's talk about this genre. You know, I don't know the name. Very well-known author has these kinds of military-esque sort of cop, whatever, action kind of thriller stories. I mean, there's there's a bunch of them out there. Like um, the guy does the Jack Reacher series. There's... They're always on the shelves that when you go into like a book, like a big bookstore. Like... Well, we, we've covered Tom Clancy, although his are more military. Yeah. This does kind of feel like a uh, Hunt for Red October kind of. Oh yeah, this know, totally could well. be a Tom Clancy novel. Um, so so yeah, I think you're talking about these like military thrillers, these you know espionage thrillers, cop thrillers, crime thrillers. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's more like when I say crime thriller, I think more about like cr- 
criminals being protagonists, whereas this is not that. This is much more like because that makes yeah. me think like noir, which this right. is not, not really. I mean, maybe there's you know some some seeds from noir, but it's kind of evolved. I think Tom Clancy is a good comp, honestly. Like as far as like somebody who's a lot more popular, but um, if you're get, wanting to get an idea of like what is this book even like, it's kind of like a Tom Clancy novel. And not to sort of dissuade people from liking this or anything like that, but. I've I've really come to grips with the fact that this this is not my genre of choice. <laughs> okay, so I mean, you're, that's a, a good uh, opening. I wanted to ask you. Uh, you've seen the movie, maybe, but don't remember it. So you're going into this book fairly blind, not really knowing what to expect. And yeah, it sounds like uh, wasn't quite landing with you. What was uh, what was the disconnect there? I just uh, it's hard for me to get invested. And have my interest peaked in a story that feels so cliche in ways. And I know that maybe it wasn't for the time period, but now it, it feels that it is. It might have been still even then. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the characters are super one dimensional. And like I rolled my eyes really hard when our, our main character was introduced as this like Harvard grad turned Vietnam veteran football playing like Harvard, you know, superstar. He's a star quarterback, Harvard football lawyer who decided he didn't want to be a lawyer and instead be a cop and it got it and he got divorced because his wife didn't understand and but he's like super devoted to the job and he looks like a quarterback and he's tall and blonde and handsome and capable and the best shot on the on the you know <laughs> the entire squad yeah. and he and he can kill people but he decides not to because he's a good dude which at the end of the day look if you want that sort of wish fulfillment and you want to and you want to travel along with a character like that's that's great but for me i found it to be very shallow yeah we're talking about police captain frank malone uh who's our main character here who will be changed into john mclean and um yeah this character is the worst part of the book um and 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 there are a lot of other things i didn't like about the book just to get it out uh, from the gates. But like, he is so boring. Like, fuck this guy. He's so boring. He is a, obviously he is like this wish fulfillment. You know, talk, talk about like Mary Jane characters or, or what is it? What is that? Is that the term? Mary Sue. Mary Sue. Thank you. Mary Sue. Yeah. I don't like the term that much. I don't, I don't tend to use it regardless that, that sort of like uh author insert or just wish fulfillment character who has no flaws. Um, sometimes gets like too much of a bad rap because I think even if a character has no real flaws, as long as they are still interesting, like if they're still engaging, they have an, a personality that you want to spend time with, that there's something about them that's compelling, then you can, you can make that kind of a character work. And like, maybe it won't ever be like the greatest of fiction as far as like presenting the nuances of a human condition, because this character is kind of too, too good for that. You could still have a fun story, but this is not that to me. This is a character who has been made so perfect and any sort of flaw has been taken away from the character that all you're left with is the most boring G.I. Joe character that is so forgettable. Yeah. And I, I can see why someone would look at it and go like, this plot is interesting. What if we gave a what if we put a character in who actually has flaws and is actually an interesting person? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, maybe it makes it for a decent decent story. Luke Skywalker is trotted out often as this kind of character, but right. I think the world building and, and some of the intrigue of the character and his connection to but the- But Luke, Luke isn't, you know, hyper uh, capable right out of the gates. He at least has to learn, sure. right? Like there's at least yeah. an arc. Frank Malone, he is the same throughout. He never changes. Nothing phases him. Like he, he is hyper capable, super connected, 
a brilliant, deadly, but generous, you know, all these things that all come together and to make just a person that doesn't exist. And um, it, even if they did exist, would kind of be a boring person to be around, probably. <laughs> and I mean, to to compare this character to John McClane, because that's sort of where we're going to be at. Yeah. John McClane in the first Die Hard is, you know, stumbling and bumbling through it and making it work and stepping on glass. And, you know, there's a lot of character he's, there. He, he's not someone who went to Harvard and studied law and then decided to become a cop because he just had a passion for it. No, yeah. he's blue collar. His personal life's a mess. Not because, you know, his wife doesn't understand that he wanted to be a cop, but because he's kind of an asshole <laughs> and he rubs people the wrong way. And he, and he, is famous for doing that. Like, well, don't get me. This guy also rubs me the wrong way. Just like, there's some ideology things when well, sure. he'll think about <laughs> different races yeah. or he'll think of, I think that is more the narration because it's, it's yeah. consistent with every character. I would say like, it's, that is true. That, yeah. That's maybe like a, a, my next topic I want to get into is sort of the <laughs> ideologies behind this book that rub me the wrong way. But, um, yeah, Frank Frank Malone is just boring. Like, give him some vices, give him some uncertainty about something. Like, have him have doubts about anything, and that takes away the stakes a lot too, it right? Does. Like, you you know how everything's gonna go all, all along, and everything he does, he makes the perfect shot at the perfect moment. He makes the correct call by calling in some specialized jet that he knew about, some some military secret. Right, he knows everybody. You know, he can get the president involved in shit like he's he's not on the ground being disrespected by people who outrank him, which is often what happens to John McClane. Right. Like, oh, you're just a regular cop. We're, you know, FBI. We're whatever, whatever. Right. No respect. Whereas everybody respects him. They're like, oh, Frank Malone. He's the, he's not just a cop. He's super well decorated. And we all know about him. Anyway, I just think he's a bad character. And um, so so talking about the genre, right, like. The, the thriller military genre, um, I feel like this is inherently going to be a conservative leaning, if not fully conservative, kind of right wing genre. Um, but I'm open to the idea. And actually, I would love to hear from people if you know some some sort of military thrillers or they didn't have to be military, but just like, I mean, there are absolutely some action oriented like military thrillers that that lean further left yeah. than something like this. I would assume there has to be right because it's a big it's a big space. But um, I'm just noticing that like these setups, you have to be so careful if you're going to write a story about a group of international terrorists attacking America. Yeah, because when you're designing these characters and you're designing their ideology and what they're doing, it's so fraught you're dealing with some very real world, heavy political things. And every time you design a character who hates a particular thing about America, if that character you've designed is an out and out villain that the entire book you're going to be rooting against, you have positioned the plot in such a way and yourself in such a way to, that you are defending the thing that that character doesn't like about America. And he had a bunch of different characters dislike different things about America. And it started to feel like everything they disliked was something that the author was saying is good, right? It's like, uh, shouldn't be a problem. And like for people to hold it against America is wrong at the very least. And so it's yeah. this like tacit approval thing. And I don't know if that was what he meant. What's, let's give an example of that. Can you give a specific? Sure. So one that keeps coming up over and over again is um, these, these terrorists calling the Americans imperialists. And um, attacking sort of their um, standing in the in the world, and then um, calling them racists, 
And um, also religion gets brought up a few times. It seems kind of like anti-Christian. You know, our main our, our main villains are either alternate religions to Christianity or often uh, atheists. Like I think our main villain guy, number one, is uh, is is an atheist. And um, he like hates religion and like hates that about America. And it really it's a lot of it's just like wanting to see America get taken down a peg. And you see a lot of people just calling them American imperialists. And um, that's one where I'm like, you know, America's imperialism is kind of shitty. <laughs> and <laughs> it is something that we should think about critically. And our history of imperialism is not a good one. Um, not saying that we deserve, you know, <laughs> terrorist attacks, obviously. But, like, you have to be careful when when you're motivating all your characters in a way because it feels like you're defending it. Yeah, and I mean, it's really interesting to think of this in terms of when it came out and, and what what it's talking about with hot plane hijackings and knocking down, you know, a lot of the stuff that's going yeah. on. I mean, there was a line about how, like, oh, you know, America is so complacent. Nothing has happened. We haven't it's, been attacked. They've never been, you know. They haven't been attacked for 100 years on, yeah. on their this soil. This guy basically and, wants to be bin Laden. He's like, he wants to be the one, the, our main terrorist. He wants to be the one to, like, shake America to its core and cause a... Yeah. And that's really all there is to it. And at the end of his plan, spoilers, kind of, is that, like, there was no going back from what he set in motion. He he ultimately wanted it all to turn into a fireball anyway, um, with with no remorse and yeah. kind of just right off. Well, he's a sunset. complete psychopath, too. Like, our opening chapters with him, we it's established that he is a complete psychopath. He doesn't care about anybody. Um, and when you're tying all of the ideas that these people are purporting with these absolutely heinous people. I don't know. It's tough. And, and like, we see a lot of other characters who are like misogynistic, racist, um, but they're doing it in the way of like, it's okay. Nudge, nudge, no big deal. It's not hurting anybody. Oh, you know, the stewardess doesn't care that the pilot's hitting on her. She laughs it off. It's like, it's all like that. And then when you hear the, uh, the terrorists, saying things like racist and like hating them on America, it feels like such an overblown reaction to the innocuous stuff that we're seeing almost celebrated on the other side. And, and that was where it was just got kind of gross for me. Cause it's like, we're going to, we're going to make everything seem like it's no big deal. And so that way it seems like this hate for uh, American society is completely misplaced and everybody, uh, you know, all these terrorists are just complete psychopaths and, you know, it just reduces the story to a place where it, there's a clear good and evil, right? There's a clear right, good guys, bad guys, and there's no nuance there. And that, I think that's by design because he knows his audience. I, I assume this is by design. The audience for this book, that's what they want. Like, I think if you're reading this book, you agree with that kind of political opinion, Um and he knows that. So he's like, he doesn't, people don't want to read a book and be challenged about their love for country, people who love this kind of, this kind of book. So I don't think, you know, Wager wanted to do that at all. I get why he chose that. And maybe he did fully believe all of this. I assume he probably did. But when it comes to me from an outsider who doesn't read the genre as much, it wasn't very interesting. I wanted to see, like, there's a, these are real hot button differences in people's, you know, outlooks on the world and countries' political leanings. And I would actually find it interesting to hear them presented in ways that isn't inherently condemning. You know what I mean? Like every time he talked about 
another country's points of view on stuff. It felt like it was just like being inherently condemned or being shown to be foolish or barbaric in some way. It's more real to life, right? Like people are complex. There's, yeah. it's not, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of overlap and good versus evil. Like as much as, you know, someone would want you to have that is like, oh, they're evil. No one's inherently evil, you know, like so they have children or that they love. And, you know, there's all these other complexities that go into. I mean, there are psychopaths out there and they do get involved in this stuff, but they might be a piece of a, of a larger whole. And at least that larger whole is probably not 100 percent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in listening to this, I feel like people who love this are going to would listen to us say all of this and say, like, shut up. That's not what I want to think about when I'm reading a story like this. I I, and I, I understand that that's the genre, right? That's a, and that's what it comes down to. And for me, I just found myself really like you said, I, I was bored reading this at times and I, it was a task to finish it. And it's not a very long book. Yeah. And there's a lot that happens. There's It's fast-paced. There's a lot of action. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of gunfights and, and, you know, military action being taken. And, oh, let's, and, I, I, let's talk about that, too. The, yeah. the description that goes on in, these, in this genre of military um, equipment, yeah. guns, and, and jets. Very loving. It's almost fetishizing the yeah. technology, which also reminds me of Tom Clancy a little bit, like fetishizing the, the guns themselves and the people who use them often are, are they talk about like oh this is this specific gun from west germany and and now there was an interesting thing that he threaded into this with the main antagonist sort of disguising where he's from and trying to throw the scent off of like who he is and what his motives are by using different different countries weaponry and that kind of thing which you know that's an interesting wrinkle but to me just the way that it dives into that stuff it's it it wants you to be like oh cool this experimental and like i find myself and maybe this is something i would have been more interested in when i was younger but i find that to be so so dull like to to, and i'm a technical person like i i like technology i i find myself really fascinated with a lot of camera technology and stuff that people would find completely boring but this this talk of just like it's just this cool factor that you're supposed to get caught up in. Well, it's again, it's it, 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 whether or not he's doing it because he truly finds all, loves all this stuff and is fully bought in, or if he's just doing it because that's the expectation of the genre. Like military thriller readers want that they want to read about guns, they want to read about technology, and they want to read it about it in a way that it is like isn't this fucking cool. Because that's what you know. That's what a lot of people think. So I think that's what what you're appealing to there. So an, uh, one thing that was kept rubbing me the wrong way, and I just have to point out right from the start, <laughs> um, our main character, but then also just like because there's a lot of head hopping in this book. It never really stays in one point of view. It's a lot of like we'll be in a scene and we'll get this person's thoughts and we'll get another person's thoughts and we'll get a third person's thoughts. I actually didn't didn't hate that um, mode either because I, I I liked breaking away from some of the certain point of views I was not that invested in. And then we'd get this random snapshot of a scene from like on a plane that's been hijacked or, you know, something like that where they're, they're building up the tension. And and like, I I actually liked that they, they had that much, um, that many different, you know, viewpoints. Yeah. Well, I mean, and going from scene to scene, totally cool with that. Um, within a scene so like going to the plane you have both the point of view of the like nun woman and then also the um stewardess guy who's talking to her what do they call him (laughs) flight attendant flight attendant there we go uh who's talking to her you get his point of view at the same time so you're you're bouncing back and forth that's really where i'm talking about head hopping but that was more in the style we're talking about 80s um you know stephen king is somebody who we've read who continues to write like that and he is obviously very good at what he does um it's just it's something that's not in fashion these days 
So um, I'll be curious to see if it ever like fully comes back. Um, but to me, it seems like we've moved we've moved away from that. Is it is it? Do you find it to be jarring? Do you find it to be what? What is it? Yeah. About it, why is it falling out? I think it can be a little unwieldy, um, and it's also just like it's very. It reminds you that you're in a book. It reminds you. It's a little bit of like that immersion thing, because in our own lives, we are in our own minds. And we get the idea of like, hey, we're going to drop into another character's mind, but it feels like their perception should be limited by their reality. And so as you're starting to orient yourself inside someone else's mind and what they can perceive, all of a sudden you're lifted and dropped to the other side of the same conversation they're having with the other character and their thoughts. And that movement is very unnatural. Some people are fine with it. And like, it doesn't bother me when done well, but just like... That's not my natural go-to because I, it, to me it does feel a little jarring, I guess, at times. But anyway, all of this was I was trying to set up that multiple POVs do this. He loves to talk about a character and just reduce them to their nationality. And he says phrases, the, uh, the guy on the other end of the line was a Latin. And then, uh, oh, and then there was a Japanese inside the room. Uh, you know, he, he just uses their, like, nationality and he calls it, like, A Japanese, A Latin. It just, like rub me the wrong way so much and so many yeah. different characters do it and um it's of course it's only being used for like um non-white people um reducing them in some way and then also like the ways he describes women he calls them buxom and he calls them like like all of these words are just so like misogynistic and 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 uh oh man well and, and like we didn't even mention how much like all the women you know want this character as well obviously our main character of course yeah, <laughs> everybody wants him and not even that like any any other male character we're supposed to like yeah. is irresistible like there's this there's this uh british guy on the plane whose assistant is 18 years younger than him and has secretly been in love with him like for all this time and like pining over him. He's like about to retire. He's like yeah. 60. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all just male fantasy. You know, your beautiful hot young assistant is in love with you. And like now mm-hmm. that he's gotten divorced, she's like, ooh, maybe something will happen, but I don't know. His, his, so his ex-girlfriend is like a um, air traffic control Frank sort of supervisor of some kind. Yeah. Frank's and uh, our main character. And she is like, he's got a wedding ring on still. And she's like constantly thinking about like, oh, what is his wife going to think if he like, I I just love him so much and I'm starting to feel it again and all this stuff. But he's, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm thinking of these things. And I'm just like, God, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's male wish fulfillment. You were talking before about how he was addressing people by their nationality. And I just, I I had the thought, like, it would be really funny if he, he just like picked up the phone and he's like, there was a white on the other, uh, (laughs) other (laughs) I think about how jarring that would be. Right. Yeah. And that just shows, like, wh- like why is that jarring and not calling someone a, a-, a Japanese? You know, like, yeah. they're both, it would be terrible, and that just kind of shows how awful it is. Um, and that doesn't even take into account, like, historic, you know, situations of, of uh, oppression. But anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about Walter Wager before we get into the plot of the book. Walter Herman Wager was born in 1924, would die in 2004. Um, He was an American crime and espionage thriller novelist and former editor-in-chief of Playbill magazine. The movie Teflon, starring Charles Bronson, was inspired by his novel of the same name. His book 58 Minutes was adapted into Die Hard 2, starring Bruce Willis, which is why we're talking about him today. 
So he was born in the Bronx, New York City. He's the son of a doctor and a nurse who immigrated from the Russian Empire. In 1944, he graduated from Columbia College. He went on to a Harvard Law School degree three years later. Passing the bar exams, but choosing not to practice, he went on to receive a master's degree in aviation law from Northwestern University in 1949, while also serving as an editor for the Journal of Air Law and Commerce, and then based in that city. Afterward, he spent a year in Paris as a Fulbright Fellow. He spent a year in Israel as an aviation law consultant to the Israeli Department of Civil Aviation, helping to negotiate a treaty on airspace and working out of the Lida Airport in Tel Aviv. In 1952, he returned to New York City, where he worked for the United Nations, editing documents. So, I mean, this guy, like... He, you can see that self-insert a little bit, right? Like, there's a little bit of that, like... You got to write what you know. Yeah, like, Frank Malone has a lot of these similar things. Like, he went to Harvard and didn't end up becoming a lawyer. And it, sounds, it seems like one of the things I will give him full props for, he knows a lot about aviation, about airplanes, about how a lot of these communication systems work. Now, I'm sure a lot of it's very dated now, and everything works completely different ways in, in you know, today. But for the time, this felt accurate to me. I'm no expert, but... Seems like he knows what he's talking about. He, he, he came up with like a reasonable way a lot of this could happen. And that itself is a big challenge. And one of the things that I think will set you apart if you're trying to write a book like this is like creating a novel plot that is plausible and complicated and compelling and actually is something that like if you work in this industry could be worth considering Right. Because I wonder if people read this and are like, oh, shit, maybe we should consider certain you know, flaws in our security and stuff like that. And like this guy who's writing about it knows what he's talking about. And he's thought about this a lot and he's been around it a lot. And, and I think that's some of the best stuff in this book. If I want to give it like some credit. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like a lot of authors are going to go into stories and try to thread in things that they're interested in because they want to learn more about it. And they want to it seems that. This is someone who knew a lot about aviation and and knew how to research these things in the 80s or whenever he wrote it. And then, you know, I'm sure was fascinated with the, this sort of technology. He knew he was interested in experimental aircraft and, and brought that into the story as well. So, you know, I, I think it's cool to see people passionate about different you know, topics and bringing that into their works. Yeah. Now, it's not to say you have to be a full-on aviation specialist to be able to write a book like this, but you just have to do a ton of research. Um, and, and you know, I think a combination of the two is working here. Well, like I said, like an interest that like is like borderline passion right. will, will just be enriching to a story like that. It doesn't even have to be about aviation necessarily. Yeah. Okay. So let me read uh, the first of two paragraphs of summary. I think this is the kind of, this is the kind of project where a lot of people might listen to this and not read the book. So I want to make sure everybody gets a full uh, picture on what is actually happening in the novel here. So 58 minutes is the story of a New York city police captain named Frank Malone. Malone works for a terrorism task force and he's reaching JFK airport on Christmas Eve to pick up his daughter who is visiting him for the holidays away from his estranged wife. While he's at the airport, he gets invited to talk to the head of airport security, a man named Benjamin Hamilton to check out the security of the airport in case of possible terrorist activity. And while doing that, he runs into a woman named Annabelle green who Malone was once in a relationship with, and who is now a widow working in the air traffic control room. It's all shaping up to be a boring evening until things start to go wrong, because a terrorist named Willie Straub has accepted a contract from a corrupt Middle Eastern regime to save a man in custody of the FBI. So, Staub devises a plan where a couple of his minions 
will set up high-powered radio signals that will cause all incoming flights to be unable to confirm their landings. They also cut the power to the landing strip, making it so that no flights can land. They then begin being harassed by Staub, who is just calling himself number one, and demands that they free 10 different prisoners from the U.S., give them to him, and then fly out of the city. Okay, so that's the setup, right? Like, we, we, we cut all the power, we disable communications, there's multiple different people at work here going around in different vans, like, going to these towers. Um, some A couple of, like, innocent police get caught up in it and killed, get gunned down. There's these, like, brothers. And it seems like, a, you know, a, a lot of... The, the organization is headed up by this Staub character who doesn't seem to really care about anything. He's kind of just a mercenary for hire. He doesn't like America, but he doesn't like America just because America is, like, the big bully on the street, I guess. And so he just wants to, like, take America down a peg. And then he's willing to use other believers, quote-unquote, and other, like, uh, extremists. He recruit them to his cause, but he doesn't care about their causes, um, and, and he's just using them. I couldn't help but sit there and try to compare to Hans Gruber mm. because it's a diehard project that we're yeah. in and this idea of like a radical terrorist of sorts and... Wanting to get prisoners freed, ostensibly. And, and you know, there's there's just like a gravitas and like great villain that, that Alan Rickman brought to Hans Gruber. And, and I'm remembering a lot of that. And then I get it, get this character who has some similarities but ultimately the plan feels a little more half-baked it's like it's very complicated you're relying on this intense weather event to to cover a lot of stuff a lot of variables are up in the air they don't feel well planned and then yeah like you said these everybody else is just fodder so all these these people are willing to you know hold out because they're extremists and they're saying like oh we're gonna get back at these americans even if it costs me my life so I think of like the sniper or whatever he was doing. Yeah, and he was one of the most interesting of the of the villains. I thought, but but also like the author so often characterizes people by their na- like their nationality. He's Japanese. He's you know, and so like everything about him is like clearly something this guy has read about Japanese people. And it's like <laughs> yeah, that, that defines the character. You know what I mean? And it boils down to stereotypes. Stereotypes. Right? It's all stereotypes. They all fit these neat stereotypes of their nationality and 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 uh, you know whether they're a man or a woman. And like those two, the way those two things come together, that defines the character. It just feels lazy to me. Yeah. You know, it's like not being able to imagine it, rich interior lives that are unique to individuals. It, to me, it's a failure of imagination from the author. Sure. Yeah. And, and like I said, it kind of it, it just feels like paint by numbers in, in ways like it's, you know, you've got your these two brothers who are Puerto Rican and that's their defining thing. Yep. And that's their defining thing is the perfect way to put it. <laughs> that is it's what <laughs> they're Puerto Rican and they don't like America. Yeah. There you go. And that's really all of these villains. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I would like some more complexity, some more like. I think some of the most interesting villains that you've seen in storytelling tend to have that that wrinkle of, oh, they kind of have a point. At, at, like in in some extreme way, they take it too far, obviously. But I think they're the the most engaging and the ones that people remember tend to be those that that have like an actual plan that that like you know you think of a character like. 
I guess Darth Vader would be a bad example since I already made a Luke Skywalker example. But like, so, so recently I remember when uh, the original Black Panther came out, everybody oh, yeah. talked about Killmonger right. as a villain and how his ideology was that black people are not treated correctly and like how that sort of builds up to, to his making his villain really well realized. And like, you're like, well, he kind of has a point and there's none of that here. Yeah. So it's so funny. You're talking about like, that is a, that is a thing that we've been seeing cropping up more and more in Marvel. And it's so funny because they, they do it because they know that that is actually interesting, but then they, you could feel them getting scared and getting worried that people are going yeah. to agree with him too much. So what their answer always is, is to have these characters inexplicably do something heinous. Sure. To where you can't quite be behind them. This came up in uh, uh, Falcon and a Winter Soldier. This this came. I, I won't get too far into it, but they basically had an organization that was tr- like really like a g- good group of people who were like had a really legitimate things they were working for. They were fighting for, and then there's right. all of a sudden they just blow up like an entire building of people. In a different story, they're like seen as like the rebellion and that kind of thing, and they're they're the heroes. And the main character who has not shown any of this, all of a sudden just like blows up a building full of innocent people, and it's like, well, you gotta gotta break a few eggs, you yeah. know. And like it, it was such an obvious moment of we're really scared at a certain point you're gonna like these people too much to where when we try and bring when we try and bring back the status quo and celebrate how good status quo is, you're not gonna quite be there. Um, and that's that that honestly like we're dealing with some similar stuff here in this book of like that's one of the reasons why you don't do that because you don't want to break this is not a book about challenging the status quo. This is a book about the status quo weathering a storm and weathering an attack. And just to finish up the the villain point, like even if obviously villains are villains, right? Like I don't agree with them at all, but especially with their means. But uh, if you're, even if the ideology is flawed, showing enough of the character to understand how they got to where they are, you know, to to say like, oh, this is why they're doing this, and they've been you know radicalized by that idea. Whereas this is kind of just like this guy's mad at America. I mean, and- he has a glass eye carries a grenade with him at all times. He has been responsible for, or at least like tacitly, uh, uh, you know, like uh, attached to the death of multiple women that he's like slept with. We hear about at the start, including one who apparently burned alive in a car. And he remembers hearing her like burning alive in the car. Um, This guy is a psychopath and he's mustache twirling villain. He hates America for just broad reasons you know, he hates Christianity. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like a poorly written Bond villain or something like that. Yeah, but without the charisma. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, that you know, at least Bond villains tend to have. Um. So, so that's our two you know main forces here. At, at you know, at work with one another. At the opening of the book, I felt like the writing was, um, a little more descriptive. I like some of the descriptions of New York City. Seemed to almost characterize it as its own entity within the book and. You know, looking out at the city and thinking about it as like the city itself as a celebrity, I thought was cool. It doesn't surprise me to learn that the author was, you know, from New York City. Clearly loved yeah. it. Um, People from New York tend to tend to love New York. So, <laughs> but, you know, like I thought that was like pretty good writing. It just, I, I think, at a certain point, the author, while writing this thing, like the start of the book, like I don't, I don't know if this was his debut, but. Um, there was a lot of attention given to the start of the book and hooking the reader with like interesting writing and like actual apt descriptors and some quality, you know, scene work. 
And you take that, and then I think, like, as the book progressed, a lot of that fell away, and we got instead into just, like, a snap, 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 this is what's happening, this is what's happening, this is what's happening. Not a lot of descriptions, just kind of like a plot, just like a, a plot playing out beat by beat very quickly. Um, and, you know, that keeps the pace moving, but it also, to me, it's like, I want a little more meat there. I want I want something a little more interesting to to read, I guess. You're talking about the description and the setup and the setting in general. We covered this because it was technically a Christmas film, or at least we're attempting to to recognize whether it was a Christmas film or not. Yeah, she's flying in for Christmas. There's a snowstorm. She's trying to get there for the holidays to spend with her dad. I think these are all hallmarks of a Christmas story. Yeah, but do you also <laughs> agree that all of that falls away and has no yeah, impact on the story? It's basically completely unimportant until the very end. When a yeah. lot of it comes back, no, right. you're, that's totally which true. I guess is kind of how Die Hard is too. Although yeah. there's like Christmas parties going on, and the, the thing is, you're in sets that have Christmas decorations often, so it kind of yeah. keeps it present because you're visually seeing it. And maybe, and I assume we'll get some of that in the in the movie as well. I don't remember, but I think we'll get more of that. I think that's what the route you would go if you're continuing the the Die Hard tradition, right? And right. had a, another Christmas story. It is interesting that this is set around Christmas and, you know, the last Die Hard was set around Christmas came out after this book and so when they're looking for it, they found a thriller also set around Christmas and they're like, yoink, we're going to adapt this thing, change the main character out for someone interesting and uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, I don't remember the movie being great. I'll be curious to see like if I feel differently about it now that I know the source material if that, like, helps me. Um, so I'll, I'll be curious to see it. I assume it's going to be at least an improvement on this. So, so would you classify this f- novel so far mm-hmm. as as Christmas story? I mean, no, <laughs> probably yeah. not. I mean, like ultimately, like it, it's more of a Christmas story than if it was set in the summer. It's set. It's set in Christmas. There's a lot of snow. Um, we hear talks about parties a lot and like Christmassy stuff going on on occasion, but ultimately it. The Christmas nature of it is not very important. It comes back around at the very end, I guess. My my reason for it not feeling very like much like a Christmas story might not. It might be bullshit, but to me, it didn't put me in any more. And I'm getting starting to feel very festive, mm. starting to get in the Christmas mood. Mm. And I didn't feel it exact. I didn't feel it sort of pull me into that at yeah, all. Yeah. And and sort of amplify that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to like what what is meant by Christmas movie, Christmas book. You know, like what is what what does that mm-hmm. mean? Guess it just didn't get me into the Christmas spirit. So I, I'm gonna say so far the novel is a is a miss for me as far as a Christmas story. Okay, let me read the uh, the the second half of summary here, and then we can we can uh, just talk about what uh, the rest of the book. So Malone then works with the staff of the airport, trying to figure out how to save all of the people up in the air, including his daughter. We check in and all sorts of people up in the sky, such as a British scholar and his love-struck assistant, a Saudi prince, a nun who is smuggling state secrets to the U.S., a doctor transporting a kidney for emergency surgery, and an old lady being reunited with her family for a publicity stunt. But none of that really matters. What does matter is that Staub has thrown the airport into disarray, and he's gleefully wandering around the airport in a priest costume so that he can keep an eye on the opposition. However, Malone and his crew quickly start getting a hold of the situation. Due to his experience with terrorism, Malone is able to figure out that he's dealing with Staub and calls in some help from the FBI. Meanwhile, some Coast Guard members who have been trying to help finally come across the source of Staub's signal. So Malone, Hamilton, and the Port Authority SWAT force storm the base, killing the single terrorist inside and taking down the signal. 
They then use the helicopter to chase down the secondary signal, and Malone kills that terrorist by blasting him repeatedly with a flare gun, causing the truck that contains the signal to crash. So just like that, the planes can start to land, and Malone returns to the airport to personally kill Staub. He is reunited with his daughter, makes a date with Annabelle, and heads off to enjoy Christmas. Uh, and that's the end of the book. So, yeah, he does everything here at the end. Yep. He even smokes a cigar while he's waiting for his for his daughter to come out of the plane. He does. And they're like, why don't you go talk to the media? They're going to be yeah. so excited you're a hero. And he's like, fuck all of that. Yeah. I'm, that's not why I do this. I'm not I'm not interested in the publicity. And then the, the, he gets offered this golden watch by the, the crown prince. And he's like, nah, tell him to shove it, basically. <laughs> and he like, kind of tacitly threatens him. Because it seems like maybe he was connected to what happened in some way. Well, yeah. And he says as much. He's kind of like you know tell this guy not to not to come on american soil for however long or else he'll be he'll have some problems or something um which scene if you were to pick one stands out to you which one are you gonna walk away remembering from this novel you know it's funny because i actually did kind of like some of the stuff that was happening on the planes um in fact the moment there's just kind of a moment it's not really a full scene but the the um of the midair collision where the pilot makes like this great maneuver to avoid crashing into another into another plane and the co-pilot is like damn that was a great move like well done he just sa- he just saved all of us and then heartbreakingly a second plane collides with them right then and like the way it's described is is really good it, the co-pilot's like you know he he only had a moment to be excited about that because then immediately right after slammed into another plane yeah and um it's, it's like tragic, right? Because it's this moment of like expertise by the pilot being able to avoid this other one. Like he makes some sort of great maneuver. And I just I thought it was really written in a, in a clever way. It's a good like, aviation moment set in this book, you know, that's got so much else going on. So that moment will stick with me. Um, I, I did like our, our one was his name Takashi or something like I, I liked him somewhat, even though he was kind of a stereotype. He was like the most interesting of the stereotypical terrorists and his sort of uh, standoff. With our main characters, um, I felt like his was more interesting than more, the final. It's more boss interesting than a lot off. of it. Yeah. Yeah. What about what about you? Uh, the scene that's going to stand with me that felt very diehard is they're in a helicopter and they're tracking this guy who's on the move in a truck and he's like a young guy driving the truck and he's just got a job and he's like I'm going to keep my eyes on the road. They they get to him and the way that they find these these signals is like. Once you pass it, it immediately like flips around and you know you're somewhat near the signal, so they have to get closer. And this guy's got some sort of jamming technology that would be pretty big, so it's filling up this this big truck. They get down to the level of the of the you know hundred feet or whatever from the truck, and they put the spotlight on him and the kid, and he, it's like blinding him from the rear view and the side view and everything. And then and then he throws that flare in there and he starts like grabbing it and he thinks he's going to be able to get it out and he's burning and stuff. I just thought that was very John McClane mm. diehard. Uh, I of think a there scene is there is some flare gun stuff that goes on in the movie if memory serves, but I I just think a lot of these action sequences got taken to like two two levels above what we get in this book because uh, I, my memory of Die Hard 2 is that the action just gets absolutely bonkers so, well the action in the first one is absolutely I know bonkers. but it's it's that escalation problem of like they felt like they had to outdo it and they it, I think that's been a problem that has made the entire franchise suffer because with every additional movie they continue to try and do that and that's why by the time you get to like four and beyond it's <laughs> I was they're just say. a bunch of superhero like John McClane's a full-on superhero just doing whatever the hell he wants 
I think Live Free or Die uh-huh. Hard is the fourth one, I believe. And I'm pretty sure John McClane takes out a helicopter with a with a car. Like he yeah. like drives a car into a ramp and it like I think he also jumps onto the wings of a fighter jet and like oh, slides yeah. across it and like all this crazy I can't remember all kinds of crazy shit happened. And, and you go back to the roots of what makes Die Hard 1 great. Basically, credit to Roderick Thorpe, whose name was misspelled in the credits of the first movie, by the way. I, I'm sure we touched on that, but I just I read about that again recently, how they didn't even spell his name right. Um, but like his character, Joe Leland, is flawed. He's this like old man who is out of his depth and just trying his best to survive and um, ends up taking out a bunch of people. But, like, that is so much more interesting to me than Frank Malone. Like, when it comes like, I, I think John McClane beats both of them. But if it's Joe Leland versus Frank Malone, give me Joe Leland every time. Even though there's a lot of wrong with that character, too, at least he is interesting in a way that, to me, Frank Malone is not. Uh, Frank Malone is basically a robot. <laughs> yeah. um, he's a G.I. Joe. It's, yeah, he really is. And, and he's also, like, a... Like, this is not a term that I will pretend has was, like, on my radar before 2020. Um, but I remember reading a lot about propaganda films and, and stories that are perpetuating the idea of the, like, rogue police officer who has to break against, like, laws that prevent him from using force in certain situations. But we cheer for it because he's clearly a good guy. And he's out there with best intentions and all these rules and regulations are just holding him back. And when you start to think about how gross that is because of the ideas it perpetuates, um, you're like, oh, oh, okay, now I see why this is not great for society. Um, I mean, and, and historically, we we know that films and, and, you know, stories in general do influence culture absolutely. and how things are done. And, and, and like, I, I remember having, like, an, like, a fairly visceral reaction to, like, th- thinking about this because I love a lot of cop-driven movies and stories out there. You know, talk about noir. Like, a lot of times it is a cop or a private eye or, or a former cop or something. And that kind of character who is hard-bitten and has training and is actually out there to, like, solve crimes and solve mysteries and catch the killer and be a good guy. And um, there's something just compelling about those characters. They deal with high society. They deal with the underbelly. They, they're, they're in different circles. And then they also have to do a really you know, mentally and emotionally demanding job. You have to be careful as a creator when you're wanting to write fiction like this about the position of the character and what the effect is on the real world issues being presented, right? So to me, it's like you could still have characters like this, but maybe consider having them not be actual police officers. Give them some situations where they are at odds with law enforcement position them as an outsider in some way is is my advice because then i think it's a little more easy to stomach some of the stuff that they have to do for compelling fiction that in real life we don't necessarily want like our law enforcement officers doing (laughs) yeah this idea too that the cops have best intentions at all time too like that that idea that everyone is thinking like, oh, they're like the cops in the movies. Like they have our best interests at heart and everything like that. The, the, these movies would have us believe that these cops are all like John McClane. They're all like, um, was it Murtaugh and Riggs from Lethal Weapon? That, that, you know what I mean? Like these are the cops out there. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's just not the case. And, um, 
they're not all good guys who who are super popular and all the women want and <laughs> have no flaws and have our best intentions in mind and just occasionally have to like do stuff that's outside the law but we should trust them because they they know what's up better than us yeah it's almost like what we were talking about before with characters being messy and and flawed and there's gray areas like that th- that's what real life is like so we should you know you should expect that on both the evil and the good side of things and and just be prepared for anyone to be capable of anything. And, and I'll, I'll shout out like a show that is ultimately at its heart a cop story that I absolutely loved and that was um, season one of True Detective. Mm-hmm. And those cops are deeply flawed, fucked up. They um, are not good guys at all. It The, the show is kind of an open question, arguably till, till the end about like, is it even possible to engage with the darkness that they have to engage with without becoming sort of stained by it? There's a lot yeah. of interesting things that can go on. And I do still like stories like this. Like it just, I just, you have to be really careful, especially these days. You have to be careful if you care about what you're perpetuating. Now, if you don't care, if you don't care, then, oh, well, but like I care. And I feel like a lot of people do care. And yeah, if you do care, I think then as soon as you decide that you care about this shit, then it is incumbent upon you to make sure that what you're writing is not feeding into that machine. And I think that's with a lot of different topics, right? Not just here with with propaganda. That's true. That's that is kind of my um, ethos as as an artist going forward. Because I want to write dark stories. I want to write. I, I write a lot of violent stories. I want. I write about difficult situations, complicated characters. And I want to engage with that stuff, even as a lot of that bumps up against real world problems and has a lot of like messy areas where there's potential to like feed into it. Right. Or, or lionize the wrong thing or what have you. And so it's just like, I think it can be done. Like I'm not someone who, who wants to say like, we shouldn't ever write stories for, you know, about X, Y, and Z topics because of this. It's like, you can do it. I just, I just think people got to be careful and be willing to admit that like, it's not always going to be perfect and that there probably will be some valid criticism thrown at you for doing it. Um, and that's okay. You know, but I think you'll always feel better at the end of the day. If you know that you were thinking about these problems and trying your best to, engage with them and and maybe uh lessen the impact and if someone looks at it and says not good enough it's still a problem at least you can feel like okay i did try though and you can sleep at night versus like either being blindsided or just not caring doing your due diligence and doing it in good faith and kind of thinking about the implications of the things that go on rather than just writing events and saying this is what i thought of yeah step outside the story for a minute and think about the message being conveyed you know, how does this line up with the larger storytelling trends in, in you know, our society? Um, it's it's kind of like next level, like uh, advanced thinking about this kind of stuff that I feel like when you're just starting out, maybe you're not ready to engage with. But the further along you get in your creative journey, I think the more you want to start making sure that you're engaging with this. Because as soon as you start to publish, you know, whether it's fiction or you start making movies or anything like that, as soon as you start making something with your name attached to it, you are now in the you know fair game for this kind of stuff, right? Whether it's not not just the criticism, but like you are making something that has the effect has effects on people and can be critically assessed, right? And that's the responsibility that we should all take seriously um, and and figure out where we're at and where we feel comfortable, I guess. So anyway, uh, just kind of a rant. It's it's like this book doesn't have like a ton to really sink my teeth into here at the end. Like it's just a big actiony 
set piece after set piece. 58 minutes is how long the plane has before it's going to crash, by the way. Um, I did read, and we'll get into this next time, next week, but I did read that there's like a shout out to this where in the movie, somebody asks the, like the pilot how long they have before they're going to crash. And he says 58 minutes and people are like, oh, so, you know, you know, a little shout out to the book. And so that's cool to see. Um, but yeah, um, I don't have a lot else to say about this book. It's just like, it wasn't, I, I don't know. I didn't love nothing lasts forever. Don't get me wrong. Um, and I, I was reading through some reviews of this book and a lot of people were saying it's better. And I get why you would say that because like there is some very capable writing early on. Some of the characterizations while broad and stereotypical are decent and somewhat compelling. There's a lot of different kinds of characters here. And then the aviation stuff, the technical details are all interesting if you're into that kind of stuff. So I can see why the general consensus is maybe that this book is better than Nothing Lasts Forever. I don't know if I'm ready to go there because of how much I care about the main character and how much I think Joe Leland, even though deeply flawed character that um, I didn't love fully, I still think is more interesting than this like white bread, boring ass protagonist we got here. Yeah, the the white <laughs> main character. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just think it's funny to refer to white people as the white. Do you, do you, yeah, the, a white, a white. A white, yeah. The, yeah. By, by a white who runs this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you Do you remember enough about Nothing Lasts Forever to, like, draw back on? And, and mm. like, how do you... Because I, I know we both didn't love that book, but, like... Yeah, I don't think that I do. I, I don't think I remember enough about it. I think there's also something about this feels pre 9-11 more interesting because we didn't live through it in a similar kind of way to like pandemic stories feel more interesting before COVID and, and the lockdown. Right. Everything's too real now. <laughs> a, lot of the, a lot of this stuff is, is too real. <laughs> yeah. It just, it feels too real in ways. And then also like, you're like, Oh, did it, would it actually happen yeah. this way? Well, Cause of course 9-11 you know. is actual hijackers, right. And religious right. extremists. And um, a lot of this shit is, is very fraught to think about now in a way that mm-hmm. it just wasn't, you know, at the time. I, like I said, I, and I think that maybe if we're talking pre-9-11, what I think is more interesting of a story, this this idea of the possibility of something like that happening is really interesting to think about. I, I want to ask you this. Someone says like, oh, I heard that the Die Hard movies are based on books. And you said, yeah, there's two of them. And they said, oh, which one should I read? Gut feeling, I, I feel like I preferred the first one because I remember like- There's some real racist stuff that happens in that one too. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not saying, yeah, ideologically <laughs> that I agree with it. Yeah. I just think that I, I remembered enough about it. I remember enough about it to know that it was like pretty similar to the film in, in certain ways. There's still like a, a Nakatomi kind of plaza. Yeah. I think a lot of the bones of what makes Die Hard the franchise it is, there's more of that DNA in Nothing Lasts Forever than there is here. To me, this feels like they borrowed this book for its plot. But I don't think anything about this book made a major change to John McClane as a character. Whereas I think John McClane was created as an alternative to Joe Leland. A younger, more capable, more charismatic alternative. And I think he was kind of created in conversation with that character from the book, you know what I mean? In a way where it's like John McClane has just plopped into this plot for, 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 the, for the second movie. So in that case, like I, I, if, you're, if you're someone who wants to read a Die Hard novel... I honestly, I think I'm going to recommend the one that's harder to find. I think I'm going to recommend Nothing Lasts Forever just because it's going to give you more insight into the franchise and into the character. Um, not saying I necessarily endorse it or think it's a great book, but um, I think it's more interesting to the diehard fan who wants to know more. 
agree. That's sort of where I was leading with all of that. And I think that when I really think of this story now that we've finished it and we're kind of wrapping up here, there's a lot of plane stuff going on. I guess technically he gets in a helicopter at yeah. times, but some of the act, it feels like a lot of like disjointed pieces that come together to sort of like defeat this villain. Whereas like something about a tower and everything being all self-contained and the the the, vil- the villain sort of being there and, and the protagonist sort of getting up to the top and defeating him. Oh, if it comes down to what's the better story between... Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2. I don't think it's... I think it's going to be no contest. Well, what I mean is, like, the structure of the story mm-hmm. is, like, the location and, and like, everything It's brilliant. That That's what makes Die Hard 1 so good. Like, one of the... You know, one of several things, but, like, part of it is how it is this, like, self-contained, like, the scope of it is very digestible. This gets so far-reaching and out of control at times that it's hard to orient yourself and it feels larger than life and um, in a way that, that the, the very human and contained story... From Die Hard One yeah. does not, and I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is like my imagination of what a story with with planes and John like the sort of Die Hard esque nature of a story, and all the, the possibilities of what could have happened. My imagination of this was was like bigger and had more of an impact um, that that it didn't really deliver on. Yeah, one thing I do remember from the movie, and this is something we can touch back on, is that I felt like John McClane got caught up in this story in a way that was like very accidental. And then he, he is just like, he is John McClane. He's got insight. He's got like gut reaction and he's kind of a badass. I mean, he's definitely a badass, but like <laughs> he like accidentally gets caught up in all of this and ends up having to do cool shit. Whereas Frank Malone from the beginning was choosing to be a part of this, was inserting himself in the investigation. So he's inserting himself in every situation. And when he did, everyone respected him and listened to him. And he had very little pushback from anybody. It was a lot of just like him coming in and owning every owning the space and owning what's happening. Um, so I think that's one of the major things I want to pay attention to is just how different the character of John McClane, who's being overlooked by people, who um, is not in a position of authority, how he is affecting this plot in a way that Frank Malone in the book engaged with in a very different way. And that's something I think we can pay attention to going into next week for our Christmas project on Die Hard 2. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, any other ones that allow you to leave reviews, you know, it'd be great. And um, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and YouTube as well uh, is another big place that we would appreciate comments or anything yeah, else you can leave. Leave a like on the video. <laughs> Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And if you'd like to support this podcast in another way, we have a Patreon where we just released an episode about uh, the Cabinet of Curiosities, the three episodes of that show that we didn't cover on the main feed. It's like episode one, seven, and eight. And we had a lot of fun talking about that. They included some of the best offerings of cabinet of curiosities so uh definitely check that out that's over on patreon.com slash ink to film and you can get access to all of our bonus content for two dollars i think we've gone a little bit over 58 minutes at this point. yeah we'll see I, maybe in the edit you can get it if you can get it down to 58 minutes man that would be awesome <laughs> yeah right um we'll see you'll, you'll take a look at the at the time and you'll see whether or not we were successful <laughs> um but yeah well, it just should be fun to come back next week and talk about looking forward to it Hope everyone's having a good holiday out there. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.